0: Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley, joined by my colleague Peter Kadzis.
1: Peter, greetings. Hey, greetings and salutations.
0: Also joining us for this episode, Dan Kennedy, our former colleague at the Boston Phoenix and current colleague at WGBH News. Dan's also a journalism professor at Northeastern University and a media critic who writes for WGBHnews.org and at his blog, Media Nation, which you can find at dankennedy.net. Dan, thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me on. In this episode, we're going to talk about a new piece that Dan wrote for WGBH News. It is the 2019 Muzzle Awards. Some of our listeners will be familiar with the Muzzle Awards. Peter and I know what they are. Dan, you know what they are but some of our listeners won't know what they are. Can you explain for the novices out there what the muzzles are and, I guess, how they got started? Oh, absolutely. Uh, The
2: muzzle awards, the New England muzzle awards, are an annual roundup uh, that we run around the 4th of July every year, to be be patriotic about it, (laughs) uh, that singles out outrages against the First Amendment that took place the previous year in various spots of New England. Uh, this is the 22nd edition. It debuted at the Boston Phoenix, where we all worked, in 1998. Uh, wow. it was, yeah, I know. Uh, it was an idea that our colleague Harvey Silverglade had, Harvey being a noted civil liberties lawyer who uh, wrote for the Phoenix and also contributes to WGBH News from time to time. And we have been doing it ever since.
0: You mentioned that these are the New England Muzzle Awards, something I failed to note. What's the deeper history there? There's another Muzzle Awards, correct? There is.
2: There's a Thomas Jefferson Center for Freedom of Expression. I, I may have botched the name slightly. Ah, the, you get, uh, you're but directionally we, correct. Right? But directionally correct. But we took the name from them, and they do good work, and uh, we we thank them for letting us steal their name. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that kind of thing's always appreciated. So I don't want to have you talk about every single muzzle award that you doled out this year. But what I'm hoping you can do is talk about the ones that you thought were really important. What were the one or two or three case studies that you got into in the 2019 muzzles that you think merit Uh, close attention from the general public.
2: Okay. Well, I have one that I think is probably the most important, and then I have a couple others that would fall into the category of my favorites. But I'll begin with the most important one first, and this happened fairly recently. It was in early May. A reporter for the Hearst Papers in Connecticut What we used to call the Bridgeport Post, but it's, you know, thanks to corporate conglomeration, it's, I'm not sure what it's called today. Uh, But her name is Tara O'Neill, and she turned out to cover a Black Lives Matter protest in Bridgeport uh, on the first anniversary of the death of Jason Negron, who was an unarmed 15 year old who had been fatally shot by a police officer a year earlier. And uh, she was standing on the sidewalk getting ready to cover the protest and, by all accounts, was pretty much the only reporter there. And uh, she's wearing her press badge, according to her account, well-known in the community. And she was arrested and taken away and held for about half an hour and then released without being charged. Uh, we've given the muzzle award to the police chief, Armando Perez. Uh, as far as I know, there has been no resolution of this. Like well, They probably figured no charge. But as a result of the reporter Tara O'Neill being taken out of the scene, Uh, There was really no coverage of the protest and no coverage of how police may have been interacting with the demonstrators.
0: I remember hearing about this. I think when you were suggesting that we talk about it on on Beat the Press, where you make regular appearances on Friday nights on WGBH, Channel 2. And one question I had was, was there some sort of extenuating set of circumstances that might have explain to some extent why the police engaged in what sounds like kind of grotesque overreach for example i was wondering if they'd been ordering you know everyone to clear off the sidewalk or something which you could certainly say would not have been appropriate but you know Had they said everyone got off the sidewalk and she just refused to move and then they arrested her? Or were were there not any extenuating circumstances that they can point to to say, well, here's why we did this?
2: If there were any extenuating circumstances, neither the police nor the city have offered any explanation. They just went silent after this happened. Uh, The Society of Professional Journalists issued a statement uh, in defense of Tara O'Neill The New England First Amendment Coalition issued a statement. Tara O'Neill's editor, Matt Dorenzo, has talked about this. Uh, There really has been no pushback from the city whatsoever. So if there were any extenuating circumstances, they've chosen not to talk about that.
0: Do you have any idea if there's a possibility of legal action coming from Tara O'Neill or her employer?
2: I haven't heard of anything. I think they just move on. Uh, The uh, relationship between the mayor and the police chief in Bridgeport has been the subject of some uh, tough reporting by the Hearst paper in Connecticut. And I think there were probably already some uh, some tension between the journalists and the police. And this just turned out to be a way over-the-top manifestation of that.
1: Yeah, this is uh, really a blatant example of what I call soft thuggery. You know, no blood was spilled, but a vital right, the public's right to know, was violated. Um, and I know those sound like fighting words, and they should. I mean, the backdrop here is the United States has a problem with police brutality and police violence, and that falls disproportionately on citizens and communities of color. To me, who knows nothing about the underlying facts of the young boy, I guess, who, who was shot by police, it immediately raises a question in my mind, um, what do they have to hide? Now that question may be totally unfair, but I think it's a pretty rational one. It's, it's spooky and um, I, I know it's not a fashionable thing for journalists to go around praising the Boston police, but I can't imagine that happening here and if it did happen, I can't imagine, you know, a full report and public explanation being forthcoming. Now, that wouldn't have been true 20 years ago, but there is, at least in Boston, been some progress. You can't say that in the bowels of Connecticut.
2: No, I think that's right. And, and you mentioned soft thuggery. This is also soft censorship Uh, No one was telling Tara O'Neill that she couldn't cover this is such that she shows up to cover it and she's removed from the scene for a convenient length of time. And then, oh, sorry, no charges. You can go.
0: All right. So that is Dan Kennedy's most important muzzle award. What are your, uh, I can't remember, what, what was the phrase you used, your favorites, your most enjoyable muzzles? I don't yes. think you said enjoyable. Okay, what are your,
1: what are your two... Uh, <laughs> I enjoyed some of them a lot.
0: <laughs> what are your two, two
2: faves? Well, my two favorites are there were two instances of high school principals who uh, decided that they were going to censor their students. And in both cases, the students fought back and won. In Burlington High School in Vermont, a group of students reported for their school newspaper and posted a story on their website, a story about some disciplinary action involving uh, their guidance counselor. It was embarrassing. The uh, interim principal, Noel Green, ordered this story censored, and the students They had to take down the story. They didn't want to get their faculty advisor into trouble. But then they started fighting back. They contacted the uh, Student Press Law Center in Washington. Uh, They found out that there was actually a law on the books in Vermont protecting them. They worked with city officials. And ultimately, they won, and their story was republished. They ended up winning a major award this past winter from the uh, New England First Amendment coalition, one of the big winners uh, for uh, fighting back against his censorship. The other one involves a young supporter of President Trump in Epping, New Hampshire. Epping High School was having an America Day, and students were urged to wear their most patriotic gear. And a freshman female student uh, wore a Make America Great Again T-shirt, and she was called into the office by her principal, a man named Brian Ernst, and told that she would have to cover it up because it was too controversial. As it turned out, she and her family and a number of other people in the community, I would say not just supporters of President Trump, but supporters of the First Amendment, uh, pushed back... And there was a huge community meeting. Uh, The principal apologized, and everybody acknowledged that this was an abridgment of her First Amendment rights. And I thought that that was uh, a great victory for her, and a statement that, you know, the First Amendment belongs to everybody,
1: even if you don't like President Trump. Yeah, I I mean, both of these drove me crazy. The reason I say that is, you know, my general stance with my boys when they were in high school they were out now was you know the teacher may not always be right but they're rarely wrong but I remember my days as a high school student and I was often a royal pain in the neck but the, the, I'm shocked these <laughs> yeah the, the these little acts of tyranny that these miniature Napoleons in in junior highs and high schools you know perpetrate on on the kids just drive me crazy. And uh, good for the kids. I mean, the the situation in New Hampshire is really outrageous. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I, I mean, really outrageous. I mean, it violates the whole spirit of an America Day, if you will. The The one in Vermont, I can understand. Uh, they were wrong. Uh, the, the principal is wrong. But you could say, well, you know, there's potential liability for criticizing a teacher and all that. And I I can at least understand. What impresses me is that the kids did their homework and uh, prosecuted their own case, and that's pretty admirable. Absolutely, absolutely.
2: I was actually at the uh, luncheon where the Burlington, Vermont kids got their award, and it was was pretty impressive. I, I remember grabbing a copy of the program and putting it in my muzzle folder that day.
1: Well, the older I get, (laughs) that's getting old, the older I get, the only reason I'm optimistic about the future of this country is when I look at young people, you you know, in general, who I think are uh, largely okay. Oh, absolutely. They're far more impressive than we are.
0: (laughs) there are a few other awards that you gave out Dan that we haven't mentioned yet but Peter I know just from chatting with you a little bit before uh, before we started to, to record this episode you're especially interested in some awards that shed some light on the way Massachusetts oh oh awards. yeah
1: well my favorite and and I understand you know why Dan chose what what he chose and I don't disagree with him but my favorite was the policy of Governor Baker's administration, you know, not to let a Boston Globe reporter, was it Abel? David Abel. David Abel, not let David Abel talk to state (laughs) ornithologists about birds. I I mean, it's just so perfect. It's also so illustrative, not just of how the Baker administration manages the news, but how most executives, you know, be be it city mayors or state governors, just bend over backwards to prevent anything that might be of interest or controversial come out. Now, politicians don't like controversy, and I can understand that, but Come on, we're talking about birds. Yes. One of these,
0: when, when when you make that point, Peter, it reminds me of the example that features our GBH colleague Mike Dean, our State House reporter. Who what did he what did he try? You to, want a to, pain
1: in the neck? There is a pain in the he neck. He tried to right.
0: take a picture, right of yep. the of the electrical or electric, I want to say electronic, but it's not. It's that the tote boy, yeah, you the, will. the, the board tote board. in the House chamber at the Massachusetts State House that shows how people voted. Exactly. Right? And that's verboten for some ridiculous reason. For
2: some crazy reason, you cannot take pictures in the uh, House chamber if you're a member of the media. And this is a great way of figuring out who voted which way without having to try to write everything down. And it would also be very interesting if you find out that somebody later changed their vote. Um now, yeah, this in, is a
1: real issue. In, in, this isn't Mike being a nudge. No, exactly. This is a, a that tote board is a public record. And in this
2: particular case, Mike Dean, knowing that that there was a no-photo policy in the chamber, uh, went to Speaker DeLeo's office and said, look, I'd like to do this. Is it okay? And they said, oh, sure, we don't care. And then one of the House court officers grabbed him anyway.
0: I'll I'll tell you, when, when Peter, you talked about the— aggressive control exercised by certain educational administrators and 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 teachers in junior high or high school settings in my limited experience at the statehouse the, uh, the the court officers there they really like to flex their muscle when they're they're given a yeah, chance
1: yeah but I, I don't they're they're they are operating in a certain context and that context is you can't go wrong by shutting out the public. That's right. And, and I would say that old, was it Mike Dukakis, who was quoted on television saying that the fish rots from the head down. Th- there is a frame of mind on Beacon Hill that, you know, don't tell nothing to nobody. Um, it, it's, it, it, it's, I don't know whether to say it's shocking, it's depressing. Um, I, again, as I said about the police in Bridgeport, Connecticut, What do they have to hide? Oh, well, as you say this, I'm reminded of, and I think
0: this happened maybe too late for the muzzles, or maybe it didn't rise to the level, but remember there was going to be the briefing at the State House about shark attacks on the Cape, and the media was initially invited by the organizers, and then uninvited, the media was barred from a
1: briefing for lawmakers about
0: Shark attack. That, well, that's, that's amazing.
1: Because some someone, in, maybe e- even not a legislator, you know, someone said, "Oh my God, this is bad for tourism." Come on, it might be good for traffic to ease a little traffic. This shark stuff, which is real, is not affecting tourism at all. I mean, that makes you know, it more what, exciting. What we think is <laughs> Jaws. You, you know, I think the press should have banded together and announced that every Friday. You know, until after Labor Day, they, they, each outlet would have a shock story mm. from, if not the Cape Cod <laughs> somewhere, yeah. like maybe Australia, where they have, you know. it It's just an insensitivity to the fact that the public is generally paying for all this to take place. And in, in fairness, good for Mike for going to the Speaker's office, good for the Speaker's office. For saying, um, you know, that's fine. Um, and, and, and I do mean good for them. But the, the speaker in the speaker's office is a creature of the House. And it's very easy to blame DeLeo for all of this. But DeLeo, I think, uh, in general, in, in attitudes towards public access, is merely reflecting the wishes of his members who for whatever reason don't want nobody to know nothing that's right that's right
2: can I go back to Governor Baker for a moment because I think well, you' got anyway I, so I, go ahead <laughs> I, I think that there's something more systemic here that we that that ought to be brought out this idea of requiring reporters to deal with uh, press spokespeople rather than actual, Uh, state employees, is not new with Governor Baker. It goes back multiple administrations. I used to deal with this as a young reporter at the Daily Times Chronicle in Woburn back in the 80s. And there was a study by the Columbia Journalism Review a couple of years ago that showed that this is endemic around the country. And it's just a way of controlling the message, and preventing the public from getting unfiltered information from state employees that they're paying for. Yeah, and it really works.
1: I mean- That's
2: right. um, Especially with the state ornithologist. Well-
1: Yeah, that guy can't can't stop talking. I actually have no idea. Tweet, tweet. (laughs) Important news breaks through. For example- The MBTA red line trail derailment, you know, there it is. And by the way, in that instance, you know, the spokespeople were there on the clock. They worked very hard. They did a really good job. So I'm being a little snide in saying that. But you can't keep a good story down. Or, as the Massachusetts State Police have shown... And I'm setting you up for this one, Dan. You, you know, the, the state police can't help but being embroiled. And when I say a good story, it's a bad story for the public. But uh, could you explain why you awarded the state police a muzzle? The Massachusetts
2: state police won kind of a triple-headed muzzle award. Uh, <laughs> they just couldn't stop themselves. Uh, for one thing, uh, as the Boston Globe revealed, uh, they destroyed overtime records um, that were uh, needed while the agency was undergoing an internal audit. Now, at that point, there had not yet been a criminal investigation into this overtime scandal, but nevertheless, there was an internal audit going on, and all of these records ended up being
1: destroyed. You you mean... Um, my impression was, yes, they followed the letter of their regulations, but they knew an investigation was coming. That's right. That's I mean, right. you and I, or Adam, I mean, I've had to testify in court several times and have been warned by our lawyers that, well, look, be really careful. You don't want to be accused of um, uh, destroying evidence. It's a very serious charge. Judge Wolf, a very tough federal judge. Judge, former prosecutor, this outraged him and with good reason. I mean, interesting, this is a footnote to Dan's uh, muzzle award for the state police. Um, someone suggested to me that state police culture really began to change when. Um, it merged with the MDC. Hmm. Now, no one ever accused the MDC police of having particularly high internal standards. (laughs) No. (laughs) And before that merger many years ago, the Massachusetts State Police was a small, elite, um, I would say almost paramilitary outfit. But um, what was admirable about it then is you knew that nothing happened that hadn't been sanctioned from above. Now we've got the wishy-washiness that, of who's in charge, you know, what? what are the lines of responsibility. And I think it's a reasonable theory to say that the culture of the Massachusetts State Police began to change when – um, the more mongrel MDC police were folded in. Interesting. Yeah,
2: that's right. And two other quick Things on the Massachusetts State Police. Uh, the Cape Cod Times revealed that the uh, state police were secretly recording every license plate going on and off uh, Cape Cod. And Mass Live, the Springfield Republican website, uh, reported that the state police refused to release public records involving a homicide even after having been ordered to by the Secretary of State's office. Other Absolutely than that, outrageous. They did everything right, Absolutely.
0: That is going to do it for this episode of The Scrum. Dan Kennedy, thanks for being here.
2: Thanks for having me. Peter
0: Kadz, it's good to wrap with you, as always. You bet. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. We'd love it if you subscribed to The Scrum, if you haven't already. And while you're at it, feel free to rate us. That'll help push the podcast to people who haven't already heard it. We'd also love to hear from you with any thoughts or feedback, positive or negative. You can get us by email at scrum at wgbh.org or on Twitter. I'm at Riley, Adam, and Peter is at Kadsas. Our engineer today was John Parker. We get pivotal production help from him, Andrew Massowet, Doug Sugarts, and Gary Mott. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.